Hello, and welcome to the Asset Allocator podcast. I'm Dan Jones, the editor of Asset Allocator, and today we're talking about some of the nuts and bolts of the fund buying process, by which I mean questions of fund capacity, fund liquidity, fund management structures, and the way in which firms themselves are run. Uh, as per usual, we'll be considering all these issues from the point of view of the fund selector, the DFM, and the multi-asset manager. Uh, I'm very pleased to say that Simon Evan Cook, a former multi-asset manager, now independent fund expert, joins me today to discuss these topics and more. Simon, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Hi, Dan. Let's start with one question which has maybe fallen off the radar. Some of those things I mentioned uh, just now, especially fund liquidity, have obviously been high on investors and fund selectors' agendas over the past few years, particularly since the fall of Neil Woodford. Absolutely, uh, yeah. But fund capacity, seems to me, has perhaps gone the other way. It's something that isn't really spoken about so much anymore. You perhaps don't see so many soft closures in particular. It seems to be something which a few years ago, you know, I and my peers, we were writing about quite a lot. Now, uh, you know, somewhat lesser spotted. I, I wonder, is that, do you think, is that a fair assessment? Is it a case that flows just aren't as concentrated in individual funds nowadays? Do the biggest funds not suffer from capacity constraints? Are marketing teams maybe getting the upper hand or or have I got the wrong end of the stick? Or what's your kind of take <laughs> on uh, on soft closure and capacity issues as they stand? Well, you're right. It's, it's not something I've given a huge amount of thought to up until, well, maybe about 10 seconds ago when you asked the question. But I think you're right. There hasn't been as many soft closures. Certainly, I haven't been hearing about as many. My kind of pet theory on why that might be might be to do with the type of fund that's been outperforming and obviously outperforming funds are always the funds that raise the most assets so I think you need to look at what's been performing well if you go back prior to 2018 I think you had a rolling period where perhaps small cap funds or more illiquid asset classes were the ones that were leading the charge those are the ones that tend to be more capacity constrained. They're the ones that you need to be a little bit more protective about when you are soft closing. Um, so it, it's possible that while those were outperforming, that's why we saw more soft closure, because you simply cannot grow those to the sky. Whereas you go back to 2018 through to well, almost today, really, but perhaps certainly uh, the end of last year, what was winning was very, very liquid investments. So you're looking at the FANGs are the obvious example. They are the biggest companies on the planet. So if you are running a fund, a US large cap growth fund that's heavily invested in Apple, in Microsoft, in Facebook, you can almost grow that to the sky without having to worry about capacity too much. So it may just be a function of what has been outperforming. Now, that hasn't necessarily continued for the last six months or so. I mean, it hasn't been that the fangs have necessarily fallen out of bed, but they're not leading the market. They're not the only game in town that they were for that two-year period. So you've started to see UK small caps, for example, have had a fantastic year. You've seen other small caps, other mid caps, other all cap strategies in different parts of the world do well. So it might be, if this continues for another three years, that some of the winning strategies in those areas will start to hit and start to creak again at the seams um, and you might start to see fun closures or soft closures again that's my theory anyway if that makes sense to you sure yeah that that does um i suppose one thing sort of leading off that maybe is is esg which you know has obviously been another uh, big success for at least a couple of years now in terms of inflows as well potentially more capacity constrained area in terms of the kind of companies they invest in maybe that's something that would come down the track possibly 
Possibly. I and mean, what might, I mean, what would be really interesting in the ESG area is that, I mean, happily for them, I think ESG has focused very heavily on the E to start with, i.e. the environmental, which means that they've been very positively skewed towards tech companies. So again, I've already mentioned, yeah, the big liquid fangs and all of those um, are quite friendly on an ESG basis, perhaps Amazon less so, given that it's it's more of a physical company than the others. So arguably they've had a lot of help on the capacity front you've been able to take in a lot of money in esg strategies without them becoming too stretched because again you can put a load of money into apple into facebook into microsoft or or alphabet what will be interesting is a lot of those companies now uh, and this is when I, I speak to fund managers one area i put the pressure on on the esg front is is much more about the S. Obviously, we've had lots of problems. Facebook's the obvious example in terms of the social pressures they're causing. Now, should those companies start to fall foul of screening processes because of the S in the ESG, that might start to cause liquidity problems because you suddenly can't start to put so many assets into those massive companies. So it'd be interesting to see what would happen there. It may be the sheer size of those companies means that cynically maybe they won't ever be screened out on s basis because it simply would cause too many systemic issues in terms of that but yeah i, I think if you were running a, a sort of more multi-cap approach on the esg front then for sure uh, you might well start to run into into problems there if you're looking in the smaller and mid-cap space but again happily for them so far it's been very large cap focused so you, you haven't had the capacity issues there just yet capacity obviously and we mentioned it there you know is ultimately a function of liquidity and and liquidity is, is, as I've said already, you know, uh, understandably a huge issue for, for fund selectors or certainly something to keep on top of at all times. From your perspective, insofar as you can answer such a broad question as the one I'm about to ask, you know, how do you approach that question of liquidity when you're you're looking at uh, potential funds? You know, obviously it varies on a sector by sector, case by case basis. But are there things now that you that you look for that you didn't a few years ago? Are, are you do you feel typically that providers do give you the right amount of information to be able to make the, the kind of calls you want to nowadays so how's that whole question kind of evolved over the past few years uh yeah there's lots of questions wrapped up in there but yeah to answer one of the the more recent ones um you might call it that first of all uh yes providers are really good at providing the right sort of level of information there's no issues on that front whatsoever um but you also kind of answered the question in in part of your question as well it, it does vary sector by sector fund by fund. So there are certain areas where just owning an open-ended fund uh, isn't appropriate. So microcap investing in the UK, um, frontier markets investing, increasingly property, obviously that's a hot topic area, but um, commercial property in an open-ended structure is, is very, very troublesome. So that's one thing you have to be aware of is the vehicle. Uh, and if never be tempted, even if you think it's a really good offering with a really good manager, but it's in an open-ended vehicle, daily priced, you just have to say, no, thank you. It's not right. Because if you get trapped in that, it's painful. You can end up with forced losses. You can end up with reputational damage from doing that. So absolutely, you have to be on top of that. But yeah, other than that, you just have to be aware of the asset class that you're in, the style that they're running, the fund manager. You have to be aware of how many stocks they're holding, how far down the market cap do they go, um, What and not just what are the conditions like today what would it be like if there's a panic on because it always feels like there's a panic at least you know within the next five years there will almost certainly be another panic situation so that's really 
what you have to think about there. And you also, I, I guess, what's changed a little bit, you had to really be very careful about this post the uh, the Woodford scandal, because obviously it wasn't just that suddenly everyone had to be aware of it. You had to be aware of the fact that a bit like a bank run, that the world was very twitchy about liquidity. And even a fund that might otherwise have been perfectly viable six months before, if you suddenly had the entire media world descending on that particular fund and causing a panic, that could cause the very thing that you're worrying about, which was that one fund buyer has to sell and they're a large holder. That causes a problem with performance. And then other fund buyers have to sell. And then suddenly you do get that run on the fund, which is in a way kind of what happened with Woodford anyway. But it just became more likely to happen on the back of Woodford, given the increased twitchiness about uh, liquidity on that on that basis. But it has died down a little bit now, but it is always something you've got to be careful of. You always, I, I think you have to kind of set your sails for what the worst of the weather might be, not what the best or the average is for sure. Right. Well, let me try and get away from my my recurring habit of asking three questions at once and pick up on one thing. You, pick up on one thing you mentioned there about um, uh, you know a big investor in the fund, their their decisions sometimes uh, uh, causing others to to follow suit. That kind of co-investor risk. Do, do, did you ever, when you look at things now, do you ever kind of place set limits on how much you'd like to see in an average fund? You know, a big investor holding if it gets above. 20 30 40 percent that's that's an immediate red flag or, or is it again a case-by-case basis for it for would holders yeah it was uh, that was really interesting because quite often uh, we used to do uh, so when i was in the last job when i was at, uh, at premier might on on the team there we used to do a lot of early stage investing quite often we would be the fund holder in some cases owning 90 percent of a fund so I was intensely comfortable at that point because mm. we were the problem rather than somebody else being the problem. So yeah. at that point, it was great because it was uh, it, frequently it was just uh, me and the and the fund manager holding it. So there was no liquidity issues. So I was pretty sure I wasn't about to panic, and I know the fund manager wasn't about to panic. So there wasn't an issue. You're right to highlight the point that where you are, let's say it's somebody else, and they were coming in and look at looking at that fund. Then the fund might have had a problem. Uh, convincing another fund buyer that actually investing along someone who owns 90% of the fund wouldn't have been a risk. So at that point, yeah, absolutely, I'd be starting to get very granular at, at trying to understand who, you know, if there is a whale investor in that fund, who are they? What are they like? Do I know them? Do I know that they're actually sensible long-term investors? Or conversely, do I know that they're a bit flighty and actually they might be in today and out tomorrow, in which case I've got a problem on my hands. So I'd look to understand even to that level of detail who they are. But yeah, you're right. If you've suddenly got a fund which has only got two or three other holders, that's a lot more vulnerable than a fund which has got a big spread of maybe four, five, six larger holders and then a large spread of increasingly small holders there as well. That's probably what you'd like to see is that spread of different types of holders, be they retail through to wholesale, a few institutionals, family offices. That's ideal because then you've, you're not exposed to just one type of fund buyer who might all panic at the same time because they've got some regulatory issue or some so, you know, some market issue that's spooking them. So you, you absolutely do need to do the work on that for sure. Yeah. Do, you, do you find providers are you know, pretty much across the board happy to provide that information? any given fund or does it vary in terms of what they tell you and how they express it yes they are obviously there might be the odd occasion where they have to be sensitive about who the other investor is but quite often you can actually find that out it seems to be reasonably 
available from various different sources, um, different fund um, analysis platforms sometimes even have that information on there so you can find it out for yourself. But they're very happy to give you the breakdown of holders. They can say that we've got five holders who own 50% of it. I mean, it would be, yeah, it would be odd if they held that sort of information back from you, frankly. Yeah. Let's turn to a slightly different point of view now. We're looking at all these these due diligence issues in many ways, but obviously that those processes also extend to the companies themselves that manage the funds, the way they manage them, but also the way they are set up and their structures. And I think you've been looking sort of particularly recently at boutiques or sort of owner-managed cultures and what they provide and what, what they can kind of give a fund selector. Can you talk a bit about what your kind of thoughts there and what you've been what you've been looking at there? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a kind of it's a, an area of, of passion for me. I guess you'd call it. It's whenever I've been investing in the past, whenever I've been fund selecting, um, I've tried to approach it in what you might call an evidence-based investing sort of way. That's a term that's been captured a little bit by the, the passive investors of this world. You know, based on the evidence of uh, of active management versus um, versus passive management, but. Within that, I think you can drill down and look at other areas of where actually can you just start picking funds and give yourself an advantage over passives or over other funds. So where are you going to find the exceptional funds? And that's what I've devoted my career to is is the study of exceptional fund managers, exceptional funds. Where do they hang out? How can you find them? Where's a good place to start? And I think having done it for years, it's occurred to me recently that just like um, you take the example of a Bailey Gifford and the companies they look for. They look for companies which have a, a, a strong culture within that within that company. So a Tesla, a very good example, or an Amazon. And those are companies which have got a strong ownership mentality. And that owner has been able to really sort of drill the culture down through the entire operation. And that's been the source of their advantage. Now, what's occurred to me is that when I've been picking funds in the past, the funds where I've had the most success have been those funds where you've got that ownership culture where the original fund manager is still very much involved or in charge or has even set up a sort of a structure or a company to keep that spirit of of fund picking alive rather than necessarily being in a much larger culture where maybe someone's hired a professional out of university and they're very competent and very um, good at what they do and present well but maybe don't have that kind of extra little bit of oomph or zing or X factor or whatever you might want to call it that I'm looking for. Now, there's statistical analysis to back this up. There's all sorts of papers out there. I think AMG did a really good paper looking at, even if you just take the average return of a boutique, uh, and obviously you can, we can get into how you define boutiques, and they define it quite a high number, but even the average boutique has outperformed the market over the last 10 years or so in all sorts of different sectors. It's not just in US equities or in small cap, but almost in every single sector you look at. If you had just taken the average boutique, you've done a lot better than the market. Now, obviously, what I take from that is actually if you then simply find the better boutiques or probably more appropriately just avoid the real stinkers, then actually what you're looking at is you're giving yourself a much better chance at outperforming from the off. So absolutely, when you look at funds, boutiques are a fantastic place to start, but it feels at the moment like they're under the cosh. It feels like there are a lot of fun buyers out there. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with them over the last couple of weeks or so with boutique owners and fund managers who've started up and are trying to raise assets. 
and they're really struggling to get fund buyers to buy in. Now, sometimes that's for technical reasons because fund buyers can't buy a fund that's smaller than 50 million or 100 million. But other times it's because I think there is a herd mentality that seems to be settling across fund buyers where they don't feel they want to take the career risk of buying a, an unknown boutique when they could be buying a much larger, you know, well-known brand of a firm with a fund that everyone else is buying at the same time. You know, it's already up to 5 billion or 10 billion. I guess it feels safe. It's the same as the you never got sacked for buying IBM model. You know, you're never going to get sacked for buying a, a fund that's very popular from a very large company. The trouble is, against that, those very large funds have got very large because the fund performance was very good. But all the evidence suggests that once a fund gets bigger, and particularly when it gets too big, that performance starts to disappear. So as far as I'm concerned as a fund picker, you should absolutely be looking at the boutiques and the smaller funds as your first port of call. And you should be really at the point when a fund's becoming very popular and your mum and dad have started buying it and your taxi driver's talking about it. That, for me, is the time actually to start thinking about moving on and say thanks for the memories and, and find the next version of that fund who's going to take you on that journey again over the next five, seven, ten years. Uh, that is interesting. I think we, we've sort of seen that as well in our uh, looking at our kind of fund selection in-house resources and, and seeing you know what, what DFMs are buying. And there is certainly... Right now, it seems. Whereas a few years ago, perhaps there was a lot more willingness to uh, to invest in these in these new houses, and perhaps partly a reflection of the fact there were many more springing up a couple of years ago than there are, say, this year. Whereas now, it's more a case of you know the big European U.S. players are appearing. It seems on their radars more and more, and that's where they want to go. And as you say, it can certainly be perceived as a safer choice because these are big companies and um, yeah. just coming to these shores. Um, and also, I suppose the ESG argument plays into that, doesn't it, as well, where they may perhaps want kind of you know that kind of convoy you know it can be a false reassurance but the reassurance of a big company behind them yeah i think and i think it is a false reassurance i think quite often the levels of esg genuine esg as in engagement um ability to or willingness to go in and, and work because quite often boutiques are investing in smaller and mid-sized companies anyway in areas where they can have an effect you know going and engaging with amazon or with apple i think you're going to have very limited effect even if you're a massive fund manager whereas at the kind of grassroots levels that a lot of boutiques operate i think they can have an effect and they quite often will have a stronger more genuine esg process than maybe some of the big houses which have possibly got a centralized process which has got more of an element of tip you know of, of ticking boxes involved so i would absolutely yeah I, I could see that people might be more comfortable with esg with a name but I think that's I think that's wrong headed. I think that's almost upside down. I think you can go into a boutique and you can find boutiques who've got very much best in class ESG processes, and those are the ones that need our backing. Well, what's your thought on again? I suppose to return to to the Woodford idea, you know, people might think now, well, how can we how can we tell when these boutiques, you know, they've got the very strong ownership culture, but when that starts getting to a place where it's perhaps overriding some of the of important principles to keep in keep in mind in terms of risk management that kind of thing is it easy to get a sense of that at a boutique i suppose in some ways it's perhaps easier than than working out the goings-on of a large company and seeing where things are going wrong with a large company it is yeah and, and it, to be fair it is when you're picking a boutique much as i think the very best fund over the next 10 years will probably be out of a boutique 
probably the very worst fund over the next 10 years will also be out of the boutique. So you are dealing with a larger range of outcomes. What I think is paid fund pickers, that's the job. But um, you're right, you do need to go and assess the culture. You need to be very, very wary of uh, fund manager ego. You, you certainly can't just rely on numbers. You have to look for warning signs of, has there been a, a lot of turnover of staff? Does it seem like a settled place? Speak to other members of, of the company. Are they happy to stay there? Does it feel like there's a culture of almost hero worship where there's one fund manager and everyone else is just doing what he or she says? Or actually, does it feel like it's more of a team-based culture and it feels more sustainable? I think this is, again, this is where as a fund picker, you earn your money. You go in and you use your own sense of empathy, your own ability to talk to someone and assess them and th- and if you have got even, like, I think you have a slight sense that there's an ego even beginning to get out of control there, that's, that's someone who's just created a sort of a team of, of sycophants around them who are trying to, you know, who are there just to fluff them, as it were, rather than actually to uh, to actually question them and, and bring them down, then you want to be avoiding that like the plague, quite frankly. I think you want to be looking for a healthy culture, level-headed fund manager, and I think by and large, that is what most boutique owners are, but you will get the odd one or two where it's all about the fund manager's ego for sure. Yeah, I think that's a sensible sentiment on which to conclude because uh, we have run out of time. But uh, Simon, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts today. It's been a, a great discussion and we hope uh, all our listeners have enjoyed it as well. Thank you for listening and do remember to keep reading the Asset Allocator newsletter every Monday to Thursday afternoon. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>